and welcome back to State of Mind. I'm Grace Kingswell and I'm a nutritional therapist, cold water swimmer, auricular acupuncturist and breathwork coach. Quite a mouthful. And this is my podcast series all about health, nutrition, lifestyle medicine, sustainability and so much more. Before we get into this episode with Kate, I quickly want to tell you about my new ebook, The Seven Day Reset Plan, which launched on the 1st of January 2020. It's a no fuss, no bliss ball, no green smoothie approach to health just real food that is honestly good for you. The plan includes lots of lifestyle advice along the lines of sleep, light, gut health and circadian rhythms and mindset, plus a collection of recipes that are aimed at calming inflammation, supporting the gut and increasing your energy levels. Head to my website, gracekingswell.com to find out more or go to my Instagram profile and click the ebook highlight to see an IGTV video I recorded which gives you a sneak peek into the recipes. So on to today's episode. Kate Mitzi is a certified nutritional practitioner and she works functionally, which is a term you may have heard me throw around a lot on this podcast before. Essentially, she works with an evidence-based yet natural approach to obtaining and maintaining good health. Instead of focusing on a singular system or body part, or even a single approach or cure, Kate will evaluate your complete health history, current lifestyle, emotional state and dietary habits to get to the root cause of your health concerns. As you'll hear from this episode, she is an incredibly knowledgeable practitioner and we do go quite in depth on a number of topics. One thing we do talk a lot about in this episode is vegan diets and the Game Changers film. And if you watched that film and immediately reevaluated the way you eat, then I urge you to listen through to the end of this episode because it is incredibly important. As ever, if you enjoy this episode, I would be grateful if you could help me to spread the word about State of Mind by sharing the episode to your Instagram stories and writing me a rave review on the Apple Podcasts app. So let's get into it. Okay, and we are rolling. So I am not in the same room as my guest today, Kate Mitzi. Um, She is across the pond. Hi, Kate. Hi, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) You're so welcome. I'm really, really excited to talk to you today. Um, We're going to delve into all things nutrition, diets, keto, blood sugar, all of that stuff. But first, um, before we get into kind of you and who you are and what you do. Um, The first question I ask everyone on the podcast is, what is the last thing you did that positively impacted your health? Do you mean today? (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, maybe today or just in general, if it's like a practice, some some sort of practice that you do in your life that kind of keeps you balanced or whatever. Sure. Well, today and every day, I... um go to the gym. So I think that would be probably my, my daily practice that I do to ensure that I'm in good health. And while at the gym, I do a sauna and a cold shower. And I think that is always a lovely start to the day. Amazing. Yeah. I love a bit of cold therapy followed by, it's always nice to warm up, isn't it? Afterwards. (laughs) It is. It is. Um, is that something you do just because you like it or are you kind of actively seeking out the benefits of cold thermogenesis and Uh, Both. I really enjoy it. I find that my cognitive function and overall happiness uh, for the rest of the day is uh, high functioning. And um, so I think it's just a feel good, but obviously there's some science behind that, as we know, Uh, really great for inflammation and recovery. So, you know, all of those things. Amazing. Um, Okay. So Kate, tell us about you. Um, What do you do? Who are you? And how have you got to where you are now? 
Sure. Well, uh, I think much like you, although our, our designation might be slightly different depending on the regulations of our respective countries, but I am a nutritional practitioner, registered holistic nutritionist, and uh, I practice as a functional nutritionist. So much like a functional medicine practitioner, I, um, I work in nutrition in the same sense. So lots of diagnostic testings and the use of uh, functional diets and considering the whole body and root cause. So I think that's very similar to how you practice as well. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, so very similar. And um, I, I came from a very different life prior to this career. This is my second career. And previously to that, I was actually in film as a professional makeup artist for over 15 years. Uh, yeah, yeah. So really interesting, very different worlds. Um, was never quite in line with that industry and always had sort of, um, my one hand in health and then my other hand in at the time, what was my career? Uh, and was always sort of struggling to decide whether I would leave it and go back to school for, uh, some sort of health modality. And my own health crisis, which had been uh, decades long at that point, propelled me in the direction of choosing to change careers. And a couple of years ago, I decided to do just that. And so I have left the industry of film entirely and am now full-time emerged in, in healthcare. Isn't it so funny that most nutritional practitioners or functional medicine, doctors, whatever, we've all had something that's made us, like we've all suffered through something and it's been, that's been the catalyst that's made us think, oh, I really want to do this full time and help other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I love that. I think that uh, when I meet healthcare practitioners that haven't had that, I'm always, um, and, and certainly there are many out there that haven't had a health crisis that can still serve people very well, but I'm always a little bit skeptical because I, I think about the compassion piece and mm -hmm. I, I wonder how relatable um, it is for them to, to understand the, the suffering and pain of people that really have dealt with chronic stuff and, and how easily they can um, relate and resonate to the stories of people who have. Not to say that that disables them from being a good practitioner, but I think it's a really nice piece to add into the equation. And I think it really makes people feel um, able to relate. Yeah, I think it's um, because there's such a mental aspect to being unwell. Um, and I don't know what it was that you suffered through necessarily, but if it's something that's chronic, then it's it's like a, it's a day in, day out battle with feeling low, feeling just a bit crap, um, you know, being probably a bit depressed, uh, you know, the gut brain axis kind of messing you up. And I think it's you do really need to empathize with people on that level. And I quite often find myself in consultations with patients going like, oh, my gosh, like, you know in my head, I'm like, this is me like a year mm -hmm. ago or two years ago. Do you get the same thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. And as, as I carve out my sort of niche in this field, of course I attract, um, you know, I attract a lot of autoimmune patients because that is what I, you know, have dealt with my whole life. So I have a lot of experience that I can um, pass on to them and a lot of, uh, a lot of that work I've done myself. So it's really easy for me to translate. And so, um, yeah, I am mirrored all the time <laughs> in my clients and I find that to be uh, a nice reminder for me. And it also makes me a better practitioner for them. I'm sure you find the same. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and what were some of the things, I mean, when, I mean, when you went through your healing journey, was it kind of, were you doing it by yourself at that time, kind of learning stuff, researching, or were you working with practitioners? What what was kind of going on at the time? Well, it's a it's quite a long journey because it started when I was five. Um, and so for, I would say, the first couple of decades, we didn't know that autoimmune was uh, at the root of it all. Um, you know, in the very early 80s, it wasn't really a conversation that anyone was having. And um, there was just so much unknown. So we really didn't get a proper diagnosis on both conditions until much later. But throughout that entire journey, I have done a lot of work with various practitioners from medical doctors to dermatologists to um, naturopathic doctors, homeopaths, energy workers. I mean, really the list goes mm. on and on and on. But um, unfortunately, none of those people were actually able to help me a great deal other than, you know, um, sort of acutely reduce symptoms or provide relief. But it was when I really started to go down the rabbit hole on my own um, towards my late 20s, early 30s, that I began to uncover um, the tricks that that helped me to find remission. And that was really the point that propelled me into doing this as a career so that I could really use that um, knowledge and experience to help others. Yeah, amazing. And you're, so you're quite a big proponent of the keto diet. And um, one of the reasons I absolutely love following you on social media is um, recently you've been uh, going through an experience of having a continuous blood glucose monitor on you at all times. And you've been kind of sharing with your followers um, the the changes in your blood sugar when you're eating um, certain foods. And I know you've been kind of deviating a little bit from your normal diet in order to kind of um, highlight those changes. Is um, the kind of keto diet one of the main things that keeps your symptoms of autoimmune condition at bay? And is that the reason you follow it? Um, I would say that it's, um, not necessarily the ketogenic diet that keeps my symptoms at bay. It is more, um, an overall reduction in inflammatory foods that works for me specifically. That's not the case yeah. for everyone, but usually with autoimmune patients, you're going to want to reduce inflammation uh, wherever possible. But, um, I did, uh, you know, for the last handful of years, I've followed a, a very, you know, ancestral health paleo based diet, which does tend to be lower carb anyways, um, in order to sort of heal and nourish my body back to health. And as that journey progressed and I played around with what made me feel optimal, I realized that, um, for me, a general reduction, um, or very, very low carbohydrate intake really did serve me best. And probably there is a connection there, um, from like a metabolic standpoint, it also just tends to eliminate all, well, you can do a keto diet in a very nasty, dirty, processed way of two, of course. But if you're doing a really nourishing, clean, ketogenic approach, um, like whole foods, then you really do keep at bay all of the inflammatory stuff that we have access to. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit of a, a double-edged sword there. 
Okay, and there's I think there's two things from that that I really want to jump into just for listeners that might be thinking, I kind of know what keto is, but like, is it just having butter in my coffee? And then people thinking, oh, I've heard this term inflammation kind of bandied around quite a lot recently, but I don't really know what it is. Could you just for listeners kind of go into, you know, what is inflammation and, um, you know, the processes that are happening happening in our body to be inflamed? And then also, what exactly is a ketogenic diet? Sure. So, I mean, inflammation is also uh, necessary. So, um, you know, anyone who's had an abrasion on the surface, so like a burn or a cut, um, you will uh, visually see inflammation happen. The skin, you know, becomes warm or red or swollen, and this can happen externally or internally. It's a protective mechanism. Um, and so, you know, obviously in the case of a burn or an abrasion, then the skin is inflamed and hot in order to potentially prevent infection, to protect the site where the, um, you know, the destruction of the tissue has occurred. And internally, the same sort of thing is happening. So if we are feeding ourselves foods that, um, you know, could be potentially degrading like our intestinal lining or causing a allergenic response, then our body is going to put in place this inflammatory um, cascade that really is there to protect us. Um, and, uh, you know, many foods like sugar, like excess sugars, excess carbohydrates, um, you know, rancid vegetable oils, things like that will cause a heightened state of inflammation in the body. And if that is happening chronically will lead to disease. Um, the ketogenic diet is, um, to me, definitely more than just a diet. Ketosis is a state, uh, like a metabolic state. Um, we have always had access to that metabolic state. And in fact, babies are born in ketosis. And I think it's really important to highlight that because um, a lot of people hear keto and they just attach it to like a fad diet, but actually it's a function of the human body or really of any animal body that we can tap into really whenever we like. Uh, we have two fuel sources, um, glucose for fuel or fat for fuel. And um, ketosis is the use of, of fat for fuel, whether it be dietary, so like exogenously consuming fat that can be used for fuel or using the fat stores uh, that we have access to in our body. Yeah, um, because, sorry, Kate, just to jump in, because I think one of the, the main things, certainly on, like in the UK at the moment, um, the kind of nutrition dialogue that we're all hearing is that... Um, you know, like, why is everyone shaming carbohydrates? And, and and the main dialogue from some kind of areas of the field is that, um, you know, the brain runs on glucose, therefore, like, we need to give it that. Um, and, and the kind of, like, anti-keto movement is very much going in for the, like, we need carbs for energy. Would you be able to just kind of unpack that a little bit and explain how the body can use fat for fuel rather than carbohydrates for fuel? Absolutely. So, um, the, so either the stored fat or dietary fat can be used to produ produce ketones, which are, are done in the liver. Um, basically, we have access to three different ketone bases, um, three hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate, and acetone. 
And those ketones um, can be used as fuel by the brain as well. And that's why a lot of people uh, find benefit from using um, MCT oil, which is like sort of fractionated coconut oil. Most people probably listening would would be familiar with MCT oil at this point. It's what uh, most people are throwing in those fatty bulletproof coffees in the morning. And the reason why that's become so popular is because it is actually like taken up as fuel immediately. It doesn't have to do any conversion because it's a medium chain triglyceride. It's pure. Um, it can actually be used as fuel, um, directly, uh, without any sort of conversion in the body, um, to reach that nutritional ketosis, to, to take advantage of those ketones that we can produce, one would have to follow a very low carb diet, which would really be under 30 grams of carbohydrates a day. I actually am a little bit more strict than that with clients in practice. I start people off on 25 grams to really get them there and get them used to the diet uh, quickly and efficiently. And um, you then would have either higher fat or adequate fat and adequate protein intake in conjunction with that low carb diet. It can also be achieved through fasting. So um, obviously more like prolonged fasting, longer fasting windows, you would then fall into a ketogenic state. And also you can use the inclusion of exogenous ketones to reap the same sort of benefits, especially neurologically um, by consuming them and and not having a ketogenic diet, for example, although you won't benefit in the same way. Okay. And then in terms of benefiting, like what are, like, why would one go on a ketogenic diet? Well, there is um, obviously like a great uh, reduction in inflammation because we are not consuming overly processed foods. We're not consuming lots of sugar. Uh, our bodies don't have to hold on to as much water when we're using ketones for fuel because our, our, we're not circulating glucose in the same way. Uh, it is perceived to um, produce more energy. There's an improvement in brain health and function overall. Uh, you know, unfortunately, like I know there's a lot of sensitivity around this discussion, but it, it does yield fat loss, which, um, you know, I'm not, a, a, I do not, I'm not a proponent of, of fat loss. It's really my least favorite thing to work mm. on with clients. I don't think it's a measure, uh, a direct measure of health necessarily, although it is, you know, tied to certain um, disease states. But, you know, there is a fat loss component to it. It's really effective for improving insulin sensitivity and lowering blood yeah. glucose, which to me is is where the magic really lies. I mean... The statistics around prediabetes and diabetes in North America specifically, it's much better in, in Europe, but in North America, it's, it's, it's scary. It's scary. It's really terrifying. And I have quite a lot of patients who are come in with pre-diabetic symptoms or blood work that indicates pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes, and they're desperate to turn their lives around. Mm-hmm. And although you can absolutely do that on a non-ketogenic diet, It takes a really long time. And depending on how far down that cascade that person is, they may not be able to use carbohydrates as a fuel source anymore. They may have exhausted their insulin sensitivity to a point where that's no longer an option. And then you're left with sort of two options. You can continue to live with type 2 diabetes and potentially be medicated, uh, you know, the worst case scenario, then having to depend on, on, um, insulin, uh, administration, mm-hmm. or you can 
use the other metabolic pathway that we have naturally, which is put in place by a ketogenic diet. And it is incredible and so fast the turnaround with patients who are able to really dig deep and and, um, learn how to use that lifestyle and approach to really change the course of their of their health. And it's, it, it's really like, it sends goosebumps down my arms every time I talk about it, because I have so much success with patients in practice that the the proof is really in the pudding. And that's why I'm so passionate about it as an intervention. And what, in terms of prediabetes, what kind of symptoms would we be looking at? Um, it's varied, uh, but you know, moodiness, um, that sort of like um, hangry kind of feeling that a lot of people sort of joke about is actually mm-hmm. a symptom of, you know, hypoglycemia. So those like big spikes and crashes in blood sugar, uh, potentially weight gain, although that is not necessarily the case across the boards. Um, uh, you know, issues with sleep, increased um, infections, so reduced immunity, um, the list goes on and on. Yeah, I think the reason why I asked you that question is because I really wanted you to highlight to people listening that how normal, um, in fact, the those symptoms of prediabetes are. I think, you know, we hear a word like diabetes or like, say, for example, some of my generation hears that word and it's like, oh, it's never going to affect me. Like, that's like a really serious thing. And then you start unpacking the symptoms of a prediabetic condition condition and you think oh my sleep's terrible my mood's really up and down I get like massive slumps at kind of like mid-afternoon after I've had my lunch and you know all of these things and you start realizing that actually that you're maintaining your blood sugar you know and an even keel is like one of the best tools that we all have in our you know own health toolbox to kind of really improve our longevity right Absolutely. And, uh, you know, where I think it's dangerous is that we've just fallen so out of touch what, with what is, I think, optimal for human yeah. dietary intake. We are so misled by lots of information out there, some of it being very valid and accurate and some of it being just total nonsense. Um, but, you know, with the uh, presence of influencers that aren't necessarily educated and trained properly in, in these fields, um, there's just a sea of misinformation out there. And so I have tried to um, experiment with some of those things with my continuous blood glucose monitor. Like, for example, the, um, you know, this idea that we need to be eating every three hours and oh my gosh, like I was just floored by. Yeah. I really <sighs> want you to tell us about your experience with this. So for, for people listening at home, a continuous blood glucose monitor is literally as it sounds. Um, Kate was able to post a graph of her blood sugar levels throughout the day. And so, and then she'd put an arrow saying, okay, I ate sushi at this time. And then you can literally see afterwards the spike in your blood sugar level. Yeah. And, and, uh, for those who did see that, or if they go back and look into my stories, I've got a CGM folder so you can kind of like get an idea of what was going on there. But I wasn't even eating the sorts of things that I would say the average person would eat in those situations. Like I, I'm, I'm so not a carbohydrate eater that I really had to push myself to, to choose things that did have some carbs. And so overall it was still low. Um, but I, you know, I had salmon or I think it was, um, yeah, salmon sashimi and tuna maki. So, you know, just the small amount of rice that would be in six little 
you know, tuna mm. rolls. Um, I did not use soy sauce on half of it. And plus soy sauce is very low in carbohydrates anyways. And there was nothing else consumed with that meal. And I was floored by the spike just from the sugar, uh, from the, the uh, rice. So I'm assuming that they probably use some sugar in the rice, which I learned is fairly common practice. Yeah, I think they do. Yeah. So, um, you know, even things like that, where people think that, okay, well, I'll, I'll go for Thai food or I'll go for Japanese food because those are the healthier, you know, options for restaurants. And unfortunately, like, it's just, we just don't know what's going into those foods in the kitchen. Mm. Um, everyone's trying to make things more tasty and delicious and, and more addictive because it means more money in the bank. We all go back for more. Um, so it's really important that we dig deep and like really do the research, ask questions, um, and self-experiment to sort of learn how our bodies respond to all of these different things that, you know, maybe society perceives as, as healthier. Yeah. So, so tell us about, cause that was the day where you did a, um, like a, in inverted commas, health, typical healthy eating day. Right. I think you had like overnight oats or something and then you had your um, sushi and there was like another really healthy meal. Was that the day that you also ate every three hours? I did, yes. I think yes. it's pretty common. Like, Absolutely. I mean, even, even myself, I know that I, if left my own devices, like I will snack, which is sure. why I try and do like a long, I kind of do like a longish fast every day, whether that's like delaying my breakfast or having a super early dinner, just so that I've got time where I'm not eating. Um, yeah, tell us about the the every three hour thing, because I think that's been a huge, especially with bodybuilding and this kind of um, culture of like people being obsessed with the gym that's exactly. kind of blossomed in the last few years. Um You've got people saying like, oh, the only way to, you know, lose weight and get really toned is to like, you know, constantly keep your metabolism in overdrive. And that means you've got to eat six meals a day. Yeah. And you know what? Years and years and years ago, um, before I had encountered a ketogenic diet, I had tried every other diet under the sun because I've always just been, you know, interested in, in self-experiment. And I have absolutely fallen victim to that, <laughs> that yeah. advice of, you know, eat six meals a day, boost your metabolism, like whatever that means. And, mm. um, and yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's so strange. We don't question it though, until we start to like become wise to it all. It's just so, such a weird a statement to make, but, um, yeah, so I wanted to take that on. So I tried to eat every three hours, which, um, like truthfully I couldn't do. I, I didn't eat lunch that day because I wasn't capable of it. I, I had stuffed myself and this is basically what my day looked like, give or take, because I can't quite remember the details, but it is on Instagram for those who are interested. Um, I had a, a fairly typical breakfast. So I had like a slice of sourdough, like organic sourdough toast with a little bit of butter. I think I had two sunny side up eggs and some bacon so and some greens. So it was like a very well-rounded meal. You know, nothing really uh, terrible there. I mean, depending mm. on what camp you're in, you might be able to pick that apart a little bit. But, um, you know, so that's what I started my day off with. And then uh, I think, you know, like a couple of hours later, close to three hours later, I had a organic buckwheat chocolate chip cookie. Uh, so again, you know, the, the healthy quote unquote version of a chocolate chip cookie. Um, mm. I again, did not have lunch. I couldn't possibly have had lunch that day. I, I tried and it was, I was, I felt nauseous. Um, I had, uh, some crackers, some grain-free 
crackers in the afternoon with some hummus. And then dinner was on the earlier side and it was the sushi meal that I talked about. Uh, The drinks all day were water except for a coffee in the morning. And my blood sugar was literally a roller coaster all day long. So, I mean, by the time I would recover from one spike from one meal, I would uh, be spiking again for the next. So really like my my blood sugar was never able to hit um, that sort of balanced starting point uh, for longer than, you know, half an hour. And then up it would go again with the next snack or meal. And then it took quite some time at the end of the day, I would say, and I I don't know this exactly at this point from memory, but hours before it was able to regulate itself, it remained sort of on the higher side throughout my entire sleep. And by the morning was finally back into a zone that I would feel is optimal. And And so when you start to see this picture, and I'm, by the way, I'll just say this, a highly insulin sensitive person, like my numbers could not be better. So there's no chance of insulin resistance. I do not fall into a category of a a delayed insulin response. I'm highly insulin sensitive. So, uh, you know, I've gotten a lot of questions like, oh, well, because you're, you eat keto, like, do you have a slower insulin response or is it possible that you have prediabetes based on, you know, some of the graphs that I've released? No, yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I've had my blood work done many, many, many times. I run it every couple of months and my numbers are optimal. So this is in a healthy person. So if you took someone who was maybe running a higher hemoglobin A1C or a higher fasting blood glucose, and then they're looking to lose weight and they're following the advice of all of these fitness quote unquote experts and eating every three hours, probably eating carbohydrates because we're also then getting that message of we need glucose to like run properly. And then they wonder why their hemoglobin A1C isn't coming down. And they're wondering why their fasting blood glucose isn't coming down. And then it just further perpetuates this dysfunctional relationship with our bodies and with our food. Wow. I mean, I want to I want to take this concept of um, blood sugar and kind of carbohydrates and and shift the conversation slightly to talk about plant based diets, because as you were talking, then it really made me think that of something my husband said to me today, which was um, so my husband's a musician. For those listening that don't know, probably do I talk about him all the time. Um he yesterday was at a gig where the only option for the food for the musicians um, was this kind of canteen food. And um, he had kind of like meat and vegetables um, and maybe some potatoes or whatever it was, but there was no vegan option for one of the, the vegan guys that was in the band. So the guy just had bread potatoes and like rice or whatever it was he he chose not to have the vegetables I don't know why <laughs> and as as you were talking then it made me think that actually a plant-based diet is predominantly carbohydrates so it is how how is the how is the blood sugar for someone that's like on a you know supposedly like super healthy plant-based diet and are they potentially at risk of some of the kind of pre-diabetic conditions that we were talking about I mean what, what's your take on that 
Yeah, well, of course, there's, you know, many different ways to eat a plant-based diet. And um, certainly it can be done low carb. It is really challenging to meet all your micro and macronutrients that way, but it can be done. Um, Dr. Will Cole, for example, he wrote a book called Ketotarian. It is not an entirely plant-based uh, ketogenic diet, but it's very close to. I think he includes some eggs and fish, but there are plenty of uh, recipes in that book that are 100% plant plant-based. And so you can, in fact, have a low carb or lower carb diet and still be plant-based. But yeah, the, 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 the average Jane or average Joe out there is, is not going to be choosing those options on a daily consistent basis because it's just not what is easily accessible, like as your yeah. husband uh, was able to pinpoint last night or, or whenever it was. Um, unfortunately, yes, most vegans and even vegetarians, uh, you know, I get meal plan or sorry, diet diaries in from these people. And it is just always grains, like grains and grains and grains upon grains, and then some mm. legumes and some more grains. And I'm going, holy moly, because not only are they uh, going to, of course, cause more blood sugar dysregulation, but we have, you know, great deal of evidence now that um, grains and legumes can be problematic for people from other uh, points of view, like inflammation, uh, from the genetic modification of these foods, from like pesticides, like glyphosate. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I really do worry about the high volume of these foods and purely plant-based people, because not only am I concerned about whether they're meeting dietary needs as far as nutrients are concerned, but then, wow, are they sure getting a heavy dose of potentially a lot of chemicals that we know now to be very problematic for health. Yeah. And um, I've, I've got to ask you, since we're recording this episode, kind of the week after the Game Changers documentary is oh, come out. And, um, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's interesting because... I put a post up on my Instagram this morning talking about the fact that the veganism is like this moral diet. Mm. And whilst I fully support that, you know, people make certain decisions based on their morals and their concern for the planet, our concern as health professionals has got to be the health of our patients and, you know, the general population. Do you worry at all that in the years to come we're we're just going to see people with nutrient, like so many nutrient deficiencies because it is, it's, it is hard. Like, let's be honest, it's possible to do a vegan diet really well. And there are a lot of people out there that, that are proving that, but it's also requires way more time and effort planning. You've got to think about what foods you're combining with what and all of this stuff. And I think a lot of people just don't do that. No, I, I absolutely agree. I think um, I think it's very dangerous. I truly do. Um, the whole you know aspect of it being a moral diet. I think that is really risky business. I think it will push a lot of people to eat in a way that doesn't serve their body or their health. Um, mm -hmm. Most particularly in pregnant women and children, um, those with autoimmune diseases or serious mental health conditions. Um, you know, one big thing that people. Uh, don't know, and this is not any fault of their own. It's just that this information isn't widely available. But you know, you really have to consider genetics. Like, 
If you have, say, something like MTHFR, uh, which is a variant, like a gene variant, then you're not able to metabolize folate or folic acid. And if you can't do that, then you can't utilize B12 efficiently. And 30 to 40% of North Americans have a MTHFR mutation. Uh, So if you're eating a vegan diet, you have to supplement with B12, um, in, and then the problem being vegan B12 supplements are thin- synthesized, so even mm-hmm. less bioavailable, uh, and then more challenging for your body to u- utilize. So in combination with MTHFR, you're not looking too good. Um, and B12 uh, and other B vitamins, as well as folate, those are critical for human health. I mean, um, they're essential, meaning we have to get them from our diet. They're mostly found in animal foods and they're necessary for metabolism, energy, uh, hormones, mental health, um, everything. (laughs) So, and that's just one. I mean, there's also the possibility that you can't convert beta carotene to vitamin A. That is another genetic variant that so many people have that they, they just would never know because they've probably been eating animal foods their whole life. But uh, for example, like if you've ever met someone that the palms of their hands are starting to go orangey because they've been drinking so much carrot juice, for example, like I think we've all kind of uh, had a run in with that in our lives. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly have. That is a person who cannot convert beta carotene into vitamin A in the liver. And that so, happened, oh my God, that's me. That's literally me. Yeah, because when I, so when I went, initially went through my, um, struggles with SIBO and mm. like everything else that was kind of cropping up at the time, um, like KPU, all these things, I really had to restrict my diet because I was reacting to like pretty much everything. Okay. Um, and two of the foods that I could eat with no problem were pumpkin and carrots. And I literally made everything out of pumpkin. I realized that if you roasted it and then like mushed it in a blender with some cinnamon and ginger and a bit of peanut butter, you could then make that into pancakes or you could bake it Mm. into bread or like I was, yeah. And I went yellow and they thought I had jaundice, but I Ah, I just had way too much beta carotene. Have you had your, your genetics done? Like, have you had any like genetic reports done? No, I haven't ever. Yeah, so it would be interesting to do that because I bet you would find that you do have that variant. I can't remember Mm. the number uh, off the top of my head, but it is very common, uh, especially common for Europeans. And um, it means that you absolutely are not able to convert beta carotene into vitamin A. And, you know, that I think that's like one um, of the big uh, sort of, you know, misinformations that exist out there. Certainly when I was vegan, because I was vegan for very long, um, prior to my, my, you know, uncovering of all my health stuff, Mm. uh, I thought, you know, I'd make a smoothie and then I'd like enter in all of my ingredients into one of those like, uh, nutritional databases. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, I've got like 800% of my vitamin A for the day. Hooray me, you know, like clap on the back. And, and, and then as I learned more and started really digging deep into the whole like nutritional science side of things, I was like, wow, uh, thankfully for me, I can convert some of that into usable vitamin A, but, but, you know, again, like it's a quite a large percentage of the population simply can't. So that's where Mm -hmm. I find like this, the game changers film, which I will say was, probably the best piece of vegan propaganda I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it was highly produced by like giant Hollywood, you know, 
heavy hitters. There was lots of money backing it. It was super cherry picked. Um, lots of half-truths littered in there, sort of fast and furious little tidbits of information that, you know, yeah, may or may not be accurate. And also, like, things like non-studies as well, like doing something once, just like showing, like, an example on a on a documentary doesn't, like, constitute it being a medical study. No, not at all. Like, lots <laughs> of N equals one sort of things. Yeah. Um, and also just some, like, really ridiculous statements, like the peanut butter sandwich thing where, you know, they were saying, like, a peanut butter sandwich has a, has much protein as I think it was... I, th- I think it was a hundred grams of steak. I could be off by that number, but, um, that is just simply not true. You would have to put a third of a cup of peanut butter onto that sandwich to give you the same amount of protein as that steak. And then, then even at that point, you still have to question its bioavailability. You have to question what does the other nutrient complex look like of of each food and then you've slathered it on two pieces of bread which as yeah. you know I would say pretty much everyone knows is probably not like your the best meal so that oh also you know you've got just like this totally you know inappropriate meal choice like two pieces yeah. of bread with a third of a cup of peanut butter and like full of fat like oh yeah that's crazy. like I think what 600 calories worth mm. of peanut butter and then the bread it's just ridiculous. Like there's just statements like that, that have, that are in that film that I think are, are so silly. And, and also they don't talk about all of the people that can perform just as well, if not better on alternate other diets. So like, yeah, veganism might serve certain people really, really well, but it's definitely not a one size fits all approach. Yeah. And also what about choline? Because I feel like this is something that is is you know it's a nutrient that people don't talk about enough and I feel like it you know it is present in plant foods but it's much more available in something like eggs for example and um for for like whole groups of the population like pregnant women for example mm-hmm. choline is absolutely essential essential we, would, would you mind touching on that a little bit yeah, sure. Um, you're right. Like choline absolutely is essential. It's it's critical for DNA synthesis. Um, it's a, a it's required to make acetylcholine, which is an important neurotransmitter. So like we need mm-hmm. that for all of our messaging and signaling, whether it be our, for our muscles, our brain. Um, you know, you touched on it being essential in pregnancy. So yeah, absolutely for the proper development of the brain and nervous system in a baby or uh, you know child. Um, and and unfortunately for those that do want to follow a plant-based diet, really like the best sources are eggs definitely being number one, organ meats, muscle meats. Um, and you can get it from some plants like peanuts, oddly enough, are a good source of choline. Um, but they pose different risks. Like for example, it's a very high mold containing food. Um, Mm. it's allergenic, it's inflammatory. And then, yeah, if you look at the nutritional, um, like, you know, Google, like best sources of choline, you're going to see that, you know, spinach and other leafy greens are a source of choline, but it's not the bioavailable form. It can be used as a metabolite, but it cannot be converted back into choline. So it is a bit misleading to, to, you know, be able to say, oh, well, I can get choline from plants. Yeah, sure. It might like, um, give you a small amount, but then you have to question the bioavailability. 
And yeah, that's like that's the they're not talking with, about that in the film. <laughs> yeah, it's like the whole thing with um with iron and spinach, isn't it? It's like exactly oh, so much iron and spinach, but then when you actually look at it, it's like, well, your body can't use it, so yeah, and you'd have but to I, eat like twelve cups of it anyways to get like the adequate yeah. surfing. I think I think it's it's important, obviously, for to to kind of caveat what we've just said with the fact that you're right. You touched on it before. Some people really really thrive mm. on a plant based diet. But sure, you have to tune into your own body and and listen to what it's what it's saying to you. And if that's that you know you really need to eat like some eggs or something like that, then I just I hope that people do it. And that's coming from my position and also your position as a nutrition professional that wants to help people feel like their best self. Yes, Um, I I agree. And I will just say, you know, like we are not incentivized or paid to have an opinion on these things. Like we truly formulate our opinions as healthcare professionals because we're looking out for the best for humans. Whereas unfortunately, even James Cameron is heavily invested in a pea protein company. And so of course he's going to invest in a film that showcases a vegan diet as being the be all end all because Mm. he wants his money back. (laughs) Um, So, you know, it's a very different argument coming from two, uh, you know, healthcare professionals who um, do the do the hard work and research to really understand the science behind it all versus uh, a group of people that have um, an agenda. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's just go back. Let's kind of loop back to um, to the kind of blood sugar thing because I feel like this is a really great takeaway for those listening and I'd love for you to give people some really easy touch points to perhaps just... Um, improve their insulin sensitivity and kind of help themselves to stabilize their blood sugar on a daily basis? Sure. Um, well, for I will start with this. For anyone who is interested in using a continuous blood glucose monitor to just understand a little bit more about their own body, you can do that. It's a consumer product. So uh, to use a freestyle Libre 14-day sensor, you do not have to have a prescription at least within Canada and England, for sure. I know that to be true. You can buy them at your pharmacy and you can put it on and start to learn a few things about yourself. Um, I will highlight a couple of the things that I think are really important, just sort of like general housekeeping rules for blood sugar. And that would be to um, definitely have a nice buffer in between meals not rely on snacking. So mm-hmm. uh, I like to go five hours between meals. I think that gives your body uh, an, a- an adequate time to um, deal with the perandial, the postperandial high of the blood sugar if you are eating carbohydrates um, and that it can be recovered and, and you come back to sort of homeostasis. And then uh, you have some time being in that zone again before you have another meal. I would... I would say that I, uh, even if you're not following a ketogenic diet, which also is not suitable for everybody, um, that you at least choose your carbohydrates wisely. I like to, uh, I, I use this term with clients where I say no naked carbs. Um, there are a few other nutritionists out there that, that say the same thing. And basically that means don't have a carbohydrate on its own. So for example, don't eat, uh, 
just a sweet potato, you know, put some olive oil on your sweet potato or have some butter with your sweet potato because the fat will buffer how fast the sugar is absorbed um, and, and utilized by the body. So it might slow down a spike or make it a little bit more tolerable. And then you also be more sustained from having a little bit of fat in there. Uh, the other major takeaway I would say is that, you know, eating your carbohydrates earlier in the day versus later in the day would be a significant takeaway. Um, through many of my experiments, having even a smaller amount of carbohydrates towards the end of the day, uh, I'm far less able to um, regulate that as quickly as I would be in the earlier part of the day. So we're, we seem to be more ins insulin sensitive in the morning and less insulin sensitive at night. And that is probably because our digestive systems are connected to our circadian rhythm. And when we are approaching sleep, we our systems slow down um, because it is our rest and digest phase. So if you are wanting to have a slightly higher amount of carbohydrates, I would um, plan that to happen earlier in the day. Yeah, amazing. And I think also one thing there um, just to touch on is um, sleep obviously is so crucial for health and spiking your blood sugar right before you go to bed is is a surefire way of, of not having um, a fantastic night's sleep. And then when you wake up tired, you'll be again reaching for something kind of sweet and sugary to kind of get you up in the morning and the whole cycle just starts again. It does. And actually poor sleep increases blood sugar. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, it really is like a catch 22 there. Um, and, and there's lots of studies actually showing that, um, people that have chronic poor sleep combined with a high carbohydrate diet can actually be in a pre-diabetic state, um, during the night they can, yeah. they might come out of it during the day, but you know, it all adds up. This is all, you know, drops in a bucket. So if we are making those same choices day in and day out, then, you know, we can start to understand how one in three people in North America have diabetes. Mm. Amazing. Well, this has been so, so interesting, Kate. Thank you so much. Mm, I, my um, pleasure. I want to ask you the same three questions I ask everyone that comes on the podcast. Um, a little bit different from what we've been talking about, but here goes. Uh, what's one thing in life you'd do again if you could? Uh, <laughs> you know, I, um, I was thinking about what my answer would be to this. I, I, and uh, I don't know that I, I feel like all of my life experiences have really helped to um, shape me into who I am. And so I don't regret any of them, but I guess like from like, since it's a novel question, I think I'd go into high school again. <laughs> I do. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would. I don't think I, I, uh, utilized my time there as efficiently as I probably would have liked to. <laughs> okay. Good answer. And, um, what's one thing you change? The food system. Uh, that's an easy answer for me. I would stop allowing corporate um, you know, America, corporate companies to control and influence our food choices and, um, mm. and our food availability. Yeah. I, you're not the first person that said that. Actually, oh, really? Podcast. Oh, that's interesting. Well, no, I just, I think it's a super valuable, um, it's a super valuable answer because like you say, so much of it is down to advertising and marketing and mm -hmm, definitely, I think every, I think everyone is confused. 
Sure. And, and rightfully so. I don't blame anybody for that confusion. Mm. Even my, even I get confused sometimes, you know, it's yeah. like, wait a second, this was marketed to appeal to me. And yeah. Do, you, do yeah. you find it hard sometimes? Um, I know you have a son and, and obviously a portion of his day will be spent at school and, and that's maybe out of your control. Do you find it hard the kind of, cause there's so much marketing directed at children um, whether it's like sugary breakfast cereals or like party food or like birthday cake or do you ever find that slightly like a, a difficult thing to, to kind of contend with? I don't find it difficult, but I find it unfair and frustrating. Um, he, you know, I, I've raised him from day one to be really involved in um, the education piece of food. Uh, so, you know, he's fully aware of, um, the shortcomings of the food industry. He knows how to read a nutrition label. He understands why things might not be good for him. And I've always made sure to bring awareness to how food makes him feel so that he's able to make choices based on feeling, tired or good or energetic or sluggish, you know? So I do think that he's well-educated. I don't think that's easy for everybody to do because of course I'm like in a bubble. I have a great deal of information and knowledge that I would say the average person does not have just based on schooling Mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, so he's well-equipped, but I find it really unfair that he has to watch his peers, um, eat foods that he knows are bad for them. Um, Mm. it actually is, it's disturbing to him and he feels concerned for them. And I think that's really sad. And, uh, yeah, it is, um, very frustrating to go to birthday parties or, you know, children's, um, you know, play, play indoor play gyms or, you know, climbing gyms, you know, all those sorts of things. When then the only options are, uh, you know, food coloring and sugar and refined carbohydrates, and there isn't a vegetable or fresh piece of fruit or protein in sight. And it is just, it's diabolical and it's just no, there's no surprise, um, at how we all turn out when that's how we're being raised. Yeah. Oh, okay. And finally, um, what does, so the podcast is called State of Mind and Mm -hmm. what does State of Mind mean to you? Um, well, our, uh, I think our state of mind defines everything that we are in any given moment. And I also think that it is sort of like the character of our thoughts. Sometimes I even associate like certain thoughts to an actual like character version of myself. So if my thoughts are pure or loving or hateful or envious or fearful, like I, I sometimes think about how they would look in representation of like me as a person. And Mm -hmm. I think that those, that those characters like ultimately flavor our physicality and our relationship to people, places, things, And so I think it is critical to nurture uh, a robust, strong, healthy state of mind where those characters are um, all of the things that we want to be. Amazing. What a fantastic answer. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you for um, sharing your knowledge with us and for what I think is going to be a really, really interesting episode. 
Thank you. I, it was so such a pleasure. And you are my first podcast over the ocean and far away. Yay. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Grace. Thank you so much for tuning back into State of Mind. I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Kate. That's it for this week, but I'll be back same time, same place on Mondays with a brand new episode. Bye-bye.